If only I had known when I was invited to Hungary to Camp Chilliberts right after the wall of communism had come down to share with the women, if only I had known what the weather would have been like and the accommodations that I would be staying in, I would have packed totally differently. Now, as it was, we were taking our four children and a friend and Brian and I, and we were going to Chilliberts in Pesha, Budapest in Hungary. And we were told it's going to be so, so hot and there's a pool and you've got kids. So hearing this news, I packed shorts and I threw in a sweater for each child for good measure. That was it. Good measure. I was told, you know, that we were going to have rooms. It, you know, um, there was one place that was like a hotel, the hotel with no bathrooms in the rooms. So they had given us a concrete bung- bungalow. This was an ex-communist camp. They didn't tell me to bring bedding. They didn't tell me that I'd need towels. They didn't tell me. So we got there, and what we had was bare mattresses, and we had children-sized beds. They didn't tell me that it, the weather would be in the 40s, and it was. It was freezing cold. I was even borrowing my 12-year-old's clothes because I was so cold. I was using a blow dryer, a little travel dryer, to heat my children up from the cold because we were in this concrete bungalow with no um, heating, no insulation. We had a corrugated roof over our heads, and this it was freezing. It was like a uh, cold storage. And so at one point when I'm heating up my children with the little blow dryer and I've got it plugged in and all the electricity is on the outside of the wall, I blew a fuse. All the lights went out and we were in pitch dark. It was, it was, you had to laugh. Well, then, you know, remember I've got a, well, let me tell you, I have a four-year-old, I have a six-year-old, I have a 12-year-old and I have a 14-year-old and her friend. And they're serving us chicken foot soup and Hungarian bread. And some of it had mold on it because this is an ex-communist camp. They didn't have the supplies coming in yet because they were just adjusting from communism to freedom. And there we were. And our ki- my kids were looking at me like, I'm hungry, mom. Feed me. And I didn't bring any snacks. The Lord is good because our high school pastor bought, brought a whole suitcase of snacks because he was prepared. Somehow he knew, dealing with teenagers, he'd need food, but he sold it to Brian. <laughs> but if I had known the conditions, I would have packed warm clothing, sweaters, coats, especially raincoats and umbrellas. I would have taken bedding. I would have brought towels, and I would have packed a ton of snacks. For most of us, looking back on our life, if we knew then what we know now, aren't there so many things you would have done differently? I was telling someone just this morning, if I had known how quickly my children would age and grow, I would have gotten them in a bear hug and it would have lasted for hours. You know, as it is, I have this thing called the grandma hug where I open up my arms really wide and the kids come into me and I count 15 and then I let them go. And oh, I count one, one and a quarter, one and a half, one and three quarters, one and seven eighths, one and nine tenths, one and 11 twelfths, two. They're like, grandma, I'm like, just a little bit more. Because now I know Now I know, oh, I would have done things so differently. I'll tell you what, I wouldn't have stressed the little things, like clean rooms. Oh, you know, your room is so dirty. What's wrong with you? You need to clean this room. I wouldn't have stressed mud mud cakes, mud pies. I knew there was a word for that. You know, when they bring them in, I wouldn't have stressed over these things. I wouldn't have stressed so much about their future and how they would, how they would turn out because they all turned out really, really well. I'm totally impressed. I would have prayed much more and entrusted much more and just simply enjoyed the journey so much more. You're on your way to an eternal destiny to heaven. 
But I want to know, are you prepared for the weather, the conditions, and the accommodations? Have you packed your bags for the ultimate journey, the ultimate future? Now, Jesus has given us a heads up on how to prepare for the inevitable place we are going. He has informed us about earth's future through his word. In 2 Peter 3.11, Peter says this, Therefore, since all these things that you see will be dissolved, everything in the earth, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? How are we to live since this earth is not our future and our future home is in heaven and it's eternal? Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastics, he has put eternity in our hearts so we cannot be content with the things of earth. Already when we accept Jesus, we have entered into eternity. But it is now time to pack and prepare for the future. And it begins with an eternal perspective. Simply, we need to know where we're going what it's going to be like, and keep that consciousness of eternity in our hearts and our mind. And when we take on this eternal perspective, this is not the end. Earth is not the end. It's just the preparatory place. It's just the boot camp for where we're going. It changes our perspective about everything, and it changes the way we deal with the substances of earth. It changes the way we deal with money and resources that are put into our our keeping. It changes our perspective on righteousness. It changes our perspective on how we treat and look at other people. It changes our perspective on offenses and sin. It changes our perspective on the divine work of God in our lives and the times we live in. In Luke 16 and 17, Jesus uses the lens of eternity to tell us how we are to live now. So first of all, it's important to realize that heaven is on our doorstep. You know, my children grew so fast. My life is going so fast. I'll tell you the truth. We had some friends that loaned us um, their car to drive uh, to a speaking engagement. And I, I was looking out the window, and all of a sudden, the scenery started going really, really fast. Like, <laughs> and I looked over at the speedometer, and Brian was going 110 miles an hour. Now, Brian goes slow. He moves slow. He talks slow. Thinks slow. He does slow really well. And I said, Brian. And he looked down, and he was like, slowly, oh, my And he didn't realize how fast he was going because he was just, you know, it was a long stretch. And man, we made record time in getting where we needed to go. (laughs) But we don't realize how fast time is going past. And here's a statistic for you. And the statistic is that 100% of all people will die. But very few people live with the consciousness of life after life. What happens after this life? People spend their money, time, energy on trying to get immediate gratification, on hoarding and holding on to their positions and their possessions. But few people consider the earthly consequences of their actions Jesus points us to the eternal perspective in Luke chapter 16. Already in Luke chapter 12, verses 31 through 34, he has told us that we need to prepare for heaven. He says this, but seek the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have. Give alms, provide yourselves money bags, which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now Jesus tells a parable about an unjust steward to point believers 
in the direction of how they are to regard money, possessions, positions. In Luke 16, verses 1 through 13, Jesus uses this parable to help us realize that what we have, even our own lives, our jobs, our family, our homes, are an entrustment from God. And that we are to use what we've been entrusted with for our future in heaven. We are to invest these things now and invest in these things for our future in heaven. We are to be faithful to God in what he has entrusted us. And we are not to become a servant to money, but to use money to serve the Lord. I've been reading through Ezekiel, and I've noticed something, that God always calls David his servant David. He never says, hey, King David. He always says, David, my servant, because David realized that the kingdom, that the kingship were in entrustment by God to serve God. They weren't an end in itself. Now I'm king. I can indulge. I can do what I want. No, it was a venue through which to serve the Lord. So in this parable, Jesus tells us about a steward who had not been upright in his dealings for his master. And the master finds out about how dishonest the steward has been. And he gives the steward a two-week notice. You know, you're going to be fired in a few weeks. And I want you to give an account with what you've done with all the things that were entrusted to you. Well, the servant thinks, oh, my goodness, I don't want to beg. And I'm too old and, you know, to dig ditches. So I know what I'll do. I'll ingratiate myself with my master's debtors so that when I get fired, my master's debtors will owe me something. They will maybe employ me or they'll help me out. So he begins to call the master's debtors one by one and to reduce their debts. To one, he says, you owe 100, write 80. I'm reducing your bill. To another, he says, you owe 100, reduce it to 50. And in this way, he begins to ingratiate using the master's entrustment, using that money for his future welfare. Now, The master commends the servant on his shrewdness. Not on his dishonesty, but his shrewdness. Because he's used his opportunity. He's used what has been entrusted to him for his future. So Jesus tells us that it is wise to think about the future. An eternal perspective should affect our regard for money and possessions. In verse 9, Jesus tells us, make friends of unrighteous mammon so that when you die, they will usher you into an everlasting inhabitation. Use what you have now to furnish your home in heaven. Use the position. Use the circumstances. Use the money to invest in heaven. We can use it now for the glory of God and the kingdom of God. I was reading this passage about six years ago. And I said, okay, okay, you know, use what I have. I've got it, Lord. Use what I have for your glory. Well, I got stuck in an ice storm in Eugene, Oregon. The airport was closed down. I wasn't quite sure how I was going to get out of there, but I was praying. I talked to Nicole Williams, who was trying to help me with a flight out. And she said, if you can just get to Portland, if you can just get to Portland. I said to her, I said, the the roads are iced over. I kept calling um, transit services and everything was shut down, everything. But about one o'clock in the morning, the Lord spoke to me and said, get up, Google it. And I'll provide. I got up. I Googled it. I got this man with a heavy accent. I can get you to Portland. I will pick you up at 7 o'clock. Be ready. I said, okay. I had no idea who was taking me. 
So this man drives up in this, this uh, family van, but it's got a fifth wheel. And he begins to drive us, uh, there were two students with me, to Portland to get a flight out. And you know, as we're driving, he says to me, what are you doing in Portland? And I said, well, I'm you know, meeting with some editors for a book I'm writing on faith in God. Uh, because I'm a believer in God and in his son, Jesus, who died for me. He says, oh, does that make you a praying woman? I said, it does indeed. He says, good, pray for me. And he says, I have a praying woman. She lives next door to me. She prays for me all the time. And I said, that's great. So he begins to tell me of the impact of this praying woman on his life and his, his wife's life. And he says, I'm a Turk. I've been raised a Muslim, but this praying woman, I've noticed something. God, God himself answers her prayers. So every time I have a trip like this with black ice, I call the praying woman and I say, pray for me. And so he's telling me all about this praying woman. As we're driving to Portland, I see all these cars on the side of the road that have hit black ice and spun out. But there we're, boom, 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 we're going on. And he's telling me about the praying woman. And that's why we're going to go to Portland because we've got the praying woman and you're praying too. That's two praying women. <laughs> then he calls the, the praying, he calls his wife. Guess what I've got in my car? I've got another praying woman. <laughs> then he calls the praying woman. Guess what? I've got another one like you in the back seat. She's a praying woman. So as we're going, the Lord begins to remind me of the scripture I read that morning. Use unrighteous mammon. And the Lord said, I want you to give him a really big tip. I'm like, Lord, that's my money. <laughs> I was going to like buy my grandson like, like a present. The Lord said, I want you to use unrighteous mammon for the glory of God and for this man. So as I, you know, we went to a market to use the restroom and I'm pulling cash out of the ATM and the Lord speaks to me how much to pull out. So this man gets me to the airport and I pull out the money and I said, this is for you. And he looks at me and then I pulled out some more money and I said, and this is for your wife. And you tell her, the praying woman says, thank you for the ride to Portland that God brought you and God got us here safely. And he looked at me and tears got on his eyes and he says, Jesus bless you. Jesus bless you. And you could see the dawning revelation in his eyes as he said the name Jesus. And he kept saying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus bless you. And he was saying it so loud that people in the airport are turning around and looking at him. And I'm like, yes, yes. Then he's picking up my luggage. He's carrying it in. Jesus, Jesus. And he won't stop saying the name of Jesus. And the Lord just brought it home. Cheryl, use this now and invest. Give a little extra tip when you, when you eat and say, well, Jesus has been so good to me. Thank you for your service. We can use unrighteous mammon today for the glory of God. We need to view our possessions and our position as an entrustment rather than our own. We need to see the things that we have as being put into our care and be faithful to God in regards to money and friends and children and jobs and houses and be good stewards and seek to use them for God's glory. Money is not to drive, motivate us but to be used for God's purposes because no servant can serve two masters. In verse 13, Jesus tells us that we will hate the one and love the other. We cannot love God and mammon, but if we love God, mammon becomes a servant for God's glory. But what does an eternal perspective toward righteousness looks like? In Luke 16, verses through 18, it begins with a right value system. Now, we're told that the Pharisees were lovers of money, and they were very upset by the parable Jesus just told. But Jesus looked at him and said, you are those who justify yourselves before men, 
but God knows your heart. You see, we need to have our hearts be so honest before God. And we need to esteem what God esteems and not justify ourselves before men. You know, we can get by with a lot before men. It's easy to deceive men. You know, you can be fighting with your husband and somebody will look, look at Cheryl just encouraging Brian. Oh, yeah. I'm encouraging him, all right. You know, people don't always know what's going on, and we can be deceived, and we can deceive others. But God knows the heart. Job looked very righteous compared to those friends that came to comfort him. And they're accusing him, and Job's like, "Uh uh-uh, you might have done that, but I didn't do that. And Job kept asserting his righteousness, asserting his righteousness, because compared to those men, he was righteous. But what happened in Job 38, the presence of the Lord came down. And in the Lord's presence, nobody is righteous. And Job, all of a sudden, instead of comparing himself to other men and justifying himself before men, he was in the presence of a living God, and there was no justification. Jesus tells us, That what is highly esteemed before men is an abomination in the sight of God. And I think of those things like might makes right or popularity or worldly riches that are esteemed by men. But God esteems things like sacrifice and love and missionaries who give up all their bank accounts to just serve Jesus. Years ago, we had a relative call us up and she was very, very upset because a woman that she worked with who was highly educated, who was making lots and lots of money, felt called to go to the mission field. And she was selling everything to go on the mission field. And this relative was saying, stop her, stop her. Tell her she can make more money and be more effective here and just tithe just 10% to those mission causes. But this woman, she wants to give up everything, her career, go to a place where her education doesn't count just to tell Muslims about Jesus. Will you tell her no? And we're like, she wants to do what? That is so cool. That is so precious. And she's like, yo, what's going on with you people? Because what men esteem, is an abomination to God. But giving up everything to tell people about Jesus, oh, oh, that means so much. And when we get to heaven and we see the tables turned, as we will in this parable we're just about to study too, you will see the glory of esteeming what God esteems. Now, Jesus is going to show us that the law cannot justify. You see, they had the law and the prophets, and they were up to John the Baptist. But we see through the law and the prophets, Israel had gotten so off. But Jesus said, now the kingdom of God has come, and men are pressing into it, not by adherence to the law, but through Jesus And yet, the law has not lost one iota of its value. Because Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it. You see, because the law is still in full force, we need Jesus. We need an advocate. Our righteousness, again, compared to other people, can look really great. But when it comes up against the living God and his law, We are all shattered. And Jesus is showing these Pharisees, no, the law is still in full force. He says, not one tittle of the law will fail. And he gives an example of marriage. Now, there was a school of Hallel in Jesus' time, and that was a rabbinical um, thought, uh, rabbinical writings, which took a very liberal view of the law. And in this liberal perspective on the law, it said that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. If she burnt the meal, 
if a better looking woman or younger looking woman came his way, he could abandon his wife and be married. And he said, well, you know, the law of Moses permitted it. And Jesus says, no, the law is still in full force and marriage still means marriage. You can try to explain it away. You can just defy it before men, but God sees. And the allowances that men make are not allowances that God makes. Our only hope, our only advocate is to press into the kingdom of God through Jesus. But an eternal perspective shows us that the law is in full force and our righteousness needs to come from Jesus Christ and not the law. The law will not get us into heaven. The law will not put the kingdom of God in our hearts. But Jesus Christ, by his sacrifice on the cross, by dying in our place, brings the kingdom of God to our hearts. Now we need an eternal perspective on others. Luke 16, 19 through 31. Jesus tells a story. Now, I'm going to tell you the truth. I don't believe this is a parable. It might be. And if I'm wrong, I'll find out in heaven. But I don't think it is because Jesus gives us a name, Lazarus. We know the name of a poor beggar who sits outside a rich man's house just hoping for crumbs. Lazarus has sores all over his body and the dogs come and lick it. That's his only relief. And he's completely ignored by this rich man. I think it's interesting that we're never told the name of this rich man. You see, an eternal perspective gives value to those who have no value on earth. And it takes away the value of those who have their value on earth and have put no value in heaven. We're told that both men died but Lazarus, it begins right there at death. Lazarus is carried by angels up to heaven. I love this. Ray Bentley, um, who's a pastor in San Diego, lost his brother. His brother had been homeless, had been a drug addict, had finally come back to Jesus. And was beginning to walk with the Lord. And he was stepping out of a convenience store at the same time that police got an emergency call on the radio. And the police didn't see him as they gunned the gas pedal. And they hit Ray's brother. And Ray's brother was thrown into the air. And he died of massive injuries. And Ray told me he could not get over his brother's death. He could not. It haunted him at night. He would wake up. He would cry at odd moments. Until one night when he went to sleep. He saw that scene that he'd seen over and over again in his dreams, playing out again. He saw his brother coming out of the convenience store. Often he would wake up screaming, no, no. He saw the police car bearing down on his brother. But this time he said he saw something he had never seen before. He saw in his dream these angels swooping down from heaven grabbing his brother and taking him up to heaven before the point of impact. And he said he saw two scenes. He saw the angels carrying his brother to heaven. And he saw the police car hit an empty corpse. And he said from that moment on, he had such comfort knowing that the angels carried his brother to heaven. This is the hope of every believer a divine escort to heaven. I think about October 3rd, 2013, when the angels came to 1624 Antigua Way and grabbed my dad and said, Chuck, long enough, we're taking you someplace where you're gonna just love it. We're taking you to meet David and Abraham and Isaac and Paul. Here we go, Chuck. Oh, what a glorious day that was. But the rich man, Mr. No Name, he's just buried in the dirt by men. Do you get the difference? Angels, men.
Lazarus and the rich men both end up in a place called Hades, but there's a great gulf separating the two portions. One, people are being comforted by Abraham. They've got association with Abraham. There is water. There is refreshment. There is joy. And it seems to me that they cannot see the people on the other side who are in misery and torment. Abraham sees, but Lazarus is not aware of it. But the rich man calls across the gulf to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, send Lazarus and make him wet his finger and bring it over and touch my tongue. Look at this rich man, unchanged. He still wants Lazarus to serve him. He doesn't realize, you know what? Conditions have changed here. The last are first and the first are last. You're no longer a rich man. You no longer have prestige. You no longer have all the advantages. Now Lazarus, who you did not esteem, has all the advantages. He is not your servant any longer. He is the son of Abraham in the presence of Abraham. The rich man then asks if Abraham will send Lazarus back to earth to tell, you know, will you send him back as a beggar again to get the crumbs and everything but a risen from the dead beggar to tell my brothers not to come to this place to warn them? Abraham says, look, they've got the law and the prophets. And they, if they listen to the law and the prophets, they won't come to this place. You know, the Pharisees had the law and the prophets, but they weren't listening. They weren't truly reading it. They weren't really open to it. They were interpreting it according to their self-indulgences. And it was not doing them any good. And the rich man says, no, but if one rose from the dead, then they would listen. But Jesus said, even if one should rise from the dead, they will not listen. Men are making eternal choices in how they live now. The rich man never stopped regarding Lazarus as a beggar beneath him, even in hell. He never considered or helped Lazarus when he had ample opportunity in life. Abraham is saying that men are responsible in their lifetime to hear Moses and the prophets and act accordingly. If they do not regard Moses and the prophets, they will not listen even to one like Jesus who rises from the dead and conquers it. Some have tried to equate this Lazarus as the one in Bethany that Jesus raised from the dead. Who knows? Again, I think it's a true story. But the point is this, hell is real. And those who go there are in torment. And those who go there do not regard the law of the prophets. They ignore the one who was raised from the dead. And while they are there, they are still unrepentant and unchanged. But God compensates in eternity for the deficits on earth. As it says in 2 Corinthians, 7, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18, that this light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far greater weight of glory. And we look not on the things that are temporal, uh, that are seen, for they are temporal, but the things that are unseen, for they are eternal. For believers, it's been said that this is the closest they will ever be to hell. And for unbelievers, earth is the closest they will ever be to heaven. God compensates in eternity for the deficits on earth. There's an association with Abraham. There is comfort. All needs amply met. No more servitude. Carried by angels, that divine escort to heaven. And identity. Name is remembered and known Next, in chapter 17, Jesus gives us an eternal perspective on offenses. First of all, we are to know on earth that offenses are inevitable. You know, people are always trying to make earth utopia or to make heaven on earth. Earth is full of offenses because earth is full of sinners. 
And as long as there's sin, there will be offenses. As long as people are self-centered and self-indulgent, they will rob from others and they will hurt others. Life is going to be full of pain and injury to the innocent because that is life on earth. But even though that is life on earth, we are not to be the cause of offenses. We are not to be little offenses. Well, you know, everybody gets hurt. This is earth. No, we're still to hate sin. Even though there are offenses, we are to hate sin and to have a serious view of sin. And we are to take heed to ourselves and say, whoa, it would be better for a millstone to be put around my neck and for me to be drowned in the sea than that I should offend an innocent one, that I should bring offense. Jesus in another portion of scripture said, you know what? It's better to cut off your hand if your hand offends you. It's better to pluck out your eyes. You know, if the computer is the source of pornography, it's better just to get rid of the computer than that it would continue to feed that lust. We don't take a serious enough view of sin, but an eternal perspective gives you a serious view of sin. But how are we to deal with offenses? If we have an eternal perspective, how are we to deal with sin? There's three ways that we deal with sin. One is we take heed to ourselves. We make sure that we're not the offender. And we need to resist the temptation to sin. Secondly, we forgive offenders. How do we deal with sin? We forgive it. We forgive it. You know, forgiveness, the word means, actually in the Greek, to cancel a debt. When somebody sins against us, we lose something. Maybe we lose possession. We lose innocence. We lose something. And we feel that they should pay it back. What they've taken, they should pay back to us. But sin says, you owe me nothing. And whatever you owe me, God will give me back. And I don't want it from you. I want it from God. So we are to rebuke it. You did wrong. And then let it go. Release them from the debt. Even if the offender keeps sinning against you, don't let unforgiveness get a grip because it will bring you down. We see in David's life where he has a son, Absalom, and Absalom absolutely is so righteously angry that his brother Amnon raped his sister Tamar. Absalom takes Tamar into his house and says, I'll protect you. This is so wrong. But then David doesn't do anything about it, his father. And Absalom begins to burn with indignation and anger. And that offense that he hated so much in his brother Amnon of raping his sister Tamar, Absalom becomes a rapist because in his rebellion and in his anger and in his unforgiveness and his bitterness, we're told that when he rebels against his father David, he sets a tent on the roof of the palace and he rapes all of his father's concubines. You will become what you hate if you let unforgiveness continue in your heart. That offense that you hate so much will become your personal offense. So how do we deal with offenses? We take heed to ourselves. We forgive offenders. But finally, we need faith. We need an increase in faith. When Jesus was telling the disciples to forgive, they rightly responded, increase our faith. We need more faith. That's the way, you know, as Shakespeare rightly said, no, it wasn't Shakespeare. I remember now it was somebody else, but he said to forgive is divine. I remember Googling it going, it's not Shakespeare. It's some John guy. Probably, you know, you're like, Cheryl, I know that one. Oh, well, you must give it to me then. But faith is what it takes to forgive. The disciples realized the wickedness of offenses and that they would need faith to recognize offenses, faith to resist temptation, 
and faith to forgive others. And so they asked the Lord to increase their faith. Now, we all want an increase in faith. Don't we just wish Jesus, you know, just went, poof, you have more faith. Ha <laughs> I have more faith. But it's a process. It's a process. And Jesus said it must go in like a mustard seed. He said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, that same type of faith that goes in small but grows exponentially. This is the faith. You have to first let it get into your heart and get implanted in your heart. That faith. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. He died for my sins and rose again from the dead. And he is the resurrection and life. And because he lives, I too will live. We let that go into our heart. And we let it go deep into our heart. And then it begins to spring up and begin to grow and takes over our heart. Faith begins to take over. And when faith begins to take over, it uproots the mountains of unforgiveness, the mountains of addiction, the mountains of sin that we could not deal with in our own life, the mountains of offenses and the mountains of unforgiveness. Faith gets rid of it. Why? Because faith has an eternal perspective again. Faith says, this is not my home. I've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Eternity is now in my heart and I am going to heaven. And I don't want to let these trivial earthly things keep me back from all the heavenly rewards. I'm going to heaven. Jesus then gives another parable to show what active faith looks like in verses 7 through 10. And he says, this is what it is. It is like servants who are obsessed with the work and pleasure of their master. They, they live to serve and to bless the master. That's what their whole lives are about. Their lives are not about when do we get to eat? When do we get to rest? When do we get to sit down? It's about obedience of the master's will It's about doing the master's work and it's about pleasing the master. This is what they're preoccupied with. And with an eternal perspective, we are occupied. This is what faith does. Faith makes us preoccupied with the master's will, with the master's work, with the master's pleasure, because we are going to someday be in the presence of the master. And when we get in his presence and he begins to commend us for the things we did on earth, we'll say, Lord, it was nothing. You gave us the power. You gave us the blueprints. You gave us the opportunity. We're just unworthy servants. It was your love. It was your power. It was your field, your strength, your work. Faith empowers us. That's the eternal perspective. Now, we have an eternal perspective on the divine work of Jesus in our life. Verses 11 through 19, we're told of these 10 lepers that see Jesus afar off. As Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, he's passing through this village. These lepers call out and say, Jesus, son of David, showing the messianic title, have mercy on us. And Jesus says to them, go show yourselves to the priest. And as they turn and as they're going, obeying the word of Jesus, they begin to look down and see that they are being cleansed as they obey. They are being cleansed. And one, a Samaritan turns around And in a loud voice begins to glorify God. He falls at Jesus' feet and he begins to thank Jesus. And Jesus says, wait, weren't weren't there 10 of you? And he says, yes. He says, where are the other nine? And he says, I don't know, but I'm here. And Jesus commends the Samaritan's faith. Now, notice that it was in obedience that they were healed. 
It's as they followed the word of Jesus. As they obeyed the word, the healing came. And you know, as we've come to Christ and we begin to obey the word, healing comes into our lives. Emotional healing, mental healing, physical healing, this healing. But you see, the one with an eternal perspective recognizes this is divine. I don't deserve this. This is the mercy of the Lord. You see, too many times we're like, Lord, you know, where's my coffee? I'm awake. You know, Lord, where's my blessings? I'm at church. Lord, where's my answer to prayer? I prayed, you know? But an eternal perspective recognizes I'm not worthy of anything. You know, I've been, the Samaritan was considered disqualified, dismissed, degraded from the promises of God. And because of that, he saw the mercy of Jesus in healing him. He saw the glory of the healing that took place as he obeyed the word. And he was filled with thankfulness. He had to turn back and fall at Jesus' feet and glorify God. You see, an eternal perspective shows us, yes, our unworthiness. But in showing us our unworthiness, it shows us the glory of Jesus to work on our behalf, to give us his word and to heal us as we obey, to work in us. And, you know, an eternal perspective allows you to begin to see right now the divine work of the Lord in your life. Like, wow, that's divine. That's divine. I have a car that works. That's divine. Broke down two weeks ago and wouldn't start on us. So every day when it starts, I'm like, this is divine. It shows us the divine work. The fact that, you know, I'm still married to Brian. That's divine. That we're happy with each other. That's divine. That we love each other. That's divine. There's so many divine things that the Lord is doing. And an eternal perspective helps us to see the glory of God, the kingdom of God right now on earth and how God is working and what he is doing. Finally, an eternal perspective allows us to discern and correctly respond to the times we live in now. Verses 20 through 37 of chapter 13. It's crazy to me how so many cannot see the peril of the times we live in. They don't see how dangerous it is when people think they can choose their gender and what that will lead to. They cannot see the consequences of their sin. You know, they say that cancer is a rebellion of the cell against the DNA. When a cell says, I don't want to obey the DNA, that that weird circular ladder that has all the information about every cell and system in our body. When one cell says, you know, and you know what's interesting is that DNA specifies which cells go to which system. When the sperm and egg come together and the cells come together, it creates the DNA strand. And then DNA strand begins to then divide with the ribosome, I hope I'm not going over your heads, and send these cells, you are a heart cell, go and multiply. You are a brain cell, really multiply. You are a skin cell, you are a hair cell. You have all these different cells and they're obeying the blueprint that the DNA gives them. And so they are going and I am a muscular cell for the hand. I am a bone cell for the foot. I am a metatarsal cell. You know, they all have these specific functions and they're obeying the DNA. But when one cell says, I don't want to be a heart. I don't want to be part of the heart system. I want to be part of the lung system. And it rebels. It begins to multiply that rebellion to the DNA. And the body begins to break down. When society begins to disobey the DNA, 
everything begins to break down. And yet some people cannot see the peril of what's going on. You know, it seems like life is just continuing like it always has. People are getting married. People are buying. People are selling. Things are all going on the same. What do you mean? There's danger. Oh, there's danger afoot. But those with an eternal perspective see the danger. And because they see the danger, they begin to prepare now for eternity. Possessions, earthly possessions lose their value. We're not going to go back into the house and get our possession. Money loses its value. It's only good for what we can do for eternity. Brian said, the earth is like a burning house. And we are the divine firemen. And our job is to get as many out of the burning house as possible to save lives, not possessions, not bank accounts, but to save lives. We live in a burning house. This earth is burning, just like Peter told us, seeing that all these things are going to be dissolved. Everything's on fire right now. Society is breaking down. But those with an eternal perspective can see the breakdown. They can see how dangerous the times are getting. You know, I think about even the United States. We're living on a credit system. We do not have the gold at Fort Knox to support our financial system. We don't, that's why we have a national debt. You know what that debt is? That tells you all the money we don't have. But we have all the dollars that say we do, but it's paper. It's paper. None of that means anything. Those with an eternal perspective see the perils and the consequences of the times we live in. I love Judge Judy. I just love her. She's mean. I told you last week. But I love her. Because you know what you see? You see all these people ending up in court thinking they have a great defense until they get in front of Judge Judy. And she's like, what do you mean? I'm stupid. Because you're stupid. Don't talk to me. You're stupid. You just look stupid. You got stupid eyes. You know, she says things like that. And then, you know, these couple like, well, we live together. Yeah, you live together. You know what? I can't help you out if you live together. If you want something out of a relationship, get married. Then you can sue them for half. But I can't do anything now. You did this to yourself, you idiot. You know, she talks like that. She just does. And you're sitting there and you're like, oh my goodness. It looked really good, your case, till you got before Judge Judy. And then it's like, oh, I guess, yeah, this is the wrong paper. You thought this paper did me any good? So good. Where are the bank account statements? I didn't know I needed them. Stupid. You're come to court. My prayer whenever I watch Judge Judy is, Lord, let me never be in Judge Judy's courtroom. <laughs> the Pharisees failed to recognize the kingdom of God among them. Though they had Moses and the law which pointed to Jesus, though they had the prophets and the prophecies about Jesus, though Jesus healed everyone who came to him, nobody had the record that Jesus did. No one ever spoke like Jesus. And even their own temple guards attested to the fact that no one ever spoke like this man. No one had the authority that Jesus had. No one had the power that Jesus had to deliver people from demons. Nobody had the grace Jesus exhibited. No one had the divine claims that Jesus claimed. Yet the Pharisees who had the scripture and the law and the prophets refused to recognize or regard Jesus. And that refusal was based on holding on to their possessions and their position. And holding on to their possessions and positions would cost them their lives. Jesus said, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will gain it for eternity. He who loses his life, he who gives his life to Jesus completely 
will receive abundant life. He who says, you know what? I'm going to do it Jesus way, not my way, not according to my thinking. You know, an eternal perspective shows you that Jesus way is the only way and the right way. Every other way you will lose your life and end up like the rich man tormented in hell. That's the reality. It's not a happy reality. The Pharisees were looking for a political Messiah that would overthrow Rome and give them national independence. But the kingdom of God is internal, and God's kingdom is an overthrow of our hearts, not of Rome. And it's to create a dependency on God, his work, his way. And when the kingdom of God comes into our hearts, the lights go on and we have an eternal perspective. Jesus gave them a series of signs they were to look for as part of discernment, the proliferation of false prophets. Those would say, everything's going to be all right. Peace, peace. No, you're fine just the way you are. Everything is so good. Just go to sleep. In fact, just watch television. Forget about this. You are what you make yourself. Sweet dreams. And they would keep the people from preparing for the times that did come. In the book of Ezekiel, in the book of Jeremiah, in the book of Isaiah, you find there's a proliferation of false prophets who are telling the people, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And because they were telling the people these things, they were not prepared for the Babylonian captivity and destruction. There is an estimate that after Jesus' resurrection, some 40 different false prophets rose up in Jerusalem who were political, and they opposed Rome, and they told Israel that they would get back their national identity and that they would be saved. There was Barcoba. There was another one that was at Masada, 40 different, all different groups from the Zealots uh, to out of the Pharisees, the Hellenists. They all had these different political messiahs. But all those messiahs died and were buried. Jesus said that those Pharisees, those religious elite, would long to see the days of Jesus. The days when Jesus was preaching the days when Jesus was among them, but they would not have that opportunity again. And they would be tempted to go after the false prophets and look in the wrong direction, look here, look there. But Jesus' return would be bright like lightning, verse 24, and unmistakable, no way to miss the next one. But first, Jesus would be rejected and suffer. But things would continue with the norms of life, eating, drinking, marrying, buying, selling, planting, building, and no awareness of the impending judgment that Vespasian was about to destroy Jerusalem and everything that they held dear and everything that they were holding on to from their political system to their spiritual system to their houses to their bank accounts and to their wealth. And Jesus said, those who are on the housetop, don't let them try to go back down into the house and save as many possessions as they can. Just let them run for their life. And for those who are in the field, don't let them return to the house, but just get to safety. In 70 AD, it's said that the Christians looking around and seeing the times and, and feeling this sense of impending doom remembered the words of Jesus. And when they saw the Romans begin to build a siege wall around Jerusalem that they escaped, that they left. They left their possessions. They left their houses. They got out of Jerusalem, and in so doing, their lives were spared. Now, Jesus said that there would be a distinction made, not by outward circumstances, by by what was going on in the heart. 
he likens the conditions. He said there were two in the same bed. In other words, they were under the same circumstances, these two men. But one is taken. One is saved and one's not saved. One goes to judgment and one is saved. There would be two women who would be working in the field. One would be saved and the other not saved. Or two women would be grinding together. Two men would be in the field. One saved, the other not saved. In other words, the distinctions would not be because of gender, because of work, or because of circumstances, but because of the eternal perspective of the heart. If eternity was in the heart, because that one had accepted the one who he himself is life, eternal life, they would be saved. But if they refused, they would go on to judgment where the vultures are. The rapture will make the distinction between those who will be saved and those who will go on to judgment on the earth. It's not by the outward circumstances, but by the internal. But if we have the eternal perspective, right now we will have discernment. Right now we will see because the eternal kingdom of God will already be ruling and reigning in our life. Because when Jesus comes in, he who is eternal and the eternal one reigns in our heart and gives us that eternal life, our perspective is totally changed. We see more than we have ever seen before. We see what the world can't see. They're like, I don't understand what your problem is. I don't understand why you're bothered by this. You're like, you don't understand why I'm bothered by this. I'm thinking about the children. I'm thinking about the breakdown in the families. I'm thinking about the children who want a father and a mother. I'm thinking about the future and the future generations. I'm thinking about the emotional security. I'm thinking about the mental health of the young ones. I'm thinking about these things. When you have an eternal perspective, life on earth becomes temporary and everything in life becomes preparatory for where we are going. And everything we have becomes an entrustment, not an ownership. Whether it's money and possessions or our righteousness, people who come into our lives, offenses, the gifts of God, the times we live in are all meant to be used for the glory of God. It's an entrustment. When you have eternity in your heart, you'll have an eternal perspective on all the things of this earth and you will seek to use what God has given you today for his glory we are all living in the shadow of eternity, and now is the time to prepare for heaven. I have a friend, she's in her 90s, and she does a Bible study, and everyone in her Bible study is in their late 80s or early 90s. And she looked at him and she said, you know, girls, what are you doing to prepare for heaven? Because you're going to be there really soon, and so am I. And she began to tell them how she's using everything she has for eternity and the investments she's made. She's not investing in Wall Street. She's investing in lives. She's investing in ministries. She is using what God has given her to invest in lives. She writes letters of encouragement to children and grandchildren and people that she's known in her life. She is preparing because she knows at 92 that any day now the angels are going to come and carry her into eternity. And she wants to be so prepared for that homegoing. Those of us who have the eternal kingdom of God in our hearts have that eternal perspective. And we need to, again, be reminded that eternity is on our doorstep. And to make today count for the glory of God. To take everything that we have that's been entrusted with to us and say, Lord, how can we use this for your glory? 
How can I mother my children for your glory? How can I minister to my grandchildren for your glory? How can I use the position you've put me in for your glory? He's put eternity in our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that even now, you will begin to let us see everything with eternity in mind. That all that we're going through, the hardships, Lord, that they will pass and we will live in eternal glory. Lord, that the money that we have will disappear and mean nothing and the possessions, nothing. But Lord, our life in heaven, our life will be with you will be forever. So Lord, let us live with this eternal perspective. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.